here with our church. I'm Josh. I'd love to get to meet you at some point. And I typically take uh, part of the Bible, open it up, read verse by verse, talk about it. And we'll be doing the same thing uh, today. And so if uh, you're not familiar with the Bible, there's kind of, there's multiple parts. You got uh, books that are uh, more historical in terms of what they write about, giving you kind of a history of things. And there's books that give us more of the rules and the law of God. There's other books that are kind of written um, more poetically. Uh, there's what's called the wisdom chapters. Those are uh, some more about the wisdom of this world and what God gives us. There's uh, some prophets who basically speak on behalf of God. And all those things kind of are in the Old Testament. Here's kind of, the, the Bible's kind of split up into two different parts. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament basically, in a nutshell, is the history of humankind and how broken we are and how much we can't fix ourselves, right? That's it. The New Testament is God's plan for redemption and fixing all things through a Savior, through Jesus. So New Testament talks about this Savior who shows up and makes all things new, makes a promise that he will redeem all things. And every unsad thing, every sad thing will become unsad. Every tear will be wiped away. All the tears, pain, all the sorrow, all that goes away at some point. And that's what the New Testament kind of declares. Now, the Old Testament also declares that it's just a little bit um, more subverse, right? In every page as you read this, there's always a plan for a hero and a savior, and that plan was always Jesus. It just got to look a little harder in the Old Testament. So what we've kind of been doing is starting at the very beginning, figuring out how broken we are and um, realizing all that. And here's kind of how God set it up. When God created the whole world and humanity, he had a very specific plan by which uh, all human growth and development would happen, which is what we're all doing. We're all um, growing and developing. And um, from the very beginning, there was a very specific plan by which that was going to take place, and it was within the family. So in the very beginning, you see God make Adam, then he makes Eve, and then he makes marriage, and then he creates family. So Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel and then Seth. And from the very beginning, the plan was that the family unit would be the thing that would uh, incubate healthy human beings. Now, when we talk about family here, we have all sorts of opinions on it. And even today, as we talk about Father's Day in this, it's complicated for some of us. Because um, some of us have a hard time celebrating our father. Right? So much of the voice that's currently in our head, which is the one that you talk to yourself more than anybody else. Your voice is the one you hear more than anybody else's. And so much of that voice is sometimes shaped from our parents, shaped from our fathers, or even shaped from the lack a voice that your father kind of offered into your brain. And so for some of us, this idea of fatherhood is quite complicated and even painful. So we go, well, if God's plan was always the family for human growth and development, then why is that such a broken thing? And uh, kind of the reality we learned several, several weeks ago is that the world that we live in currently is not the world that God originally designed. In a perfect world, there would be moms and dads love each other very well and love their kids really well, and they would uh, shepherd their children's hearts, and it could be glorious. And yet, from the very beginning, we see with Adam and Eve say, God, we like our plan better than yours. That's sin. And when that happened from them, and then their sons, and their grandsons, and their great-grandsons, and their daughters, and their granddaughters, and their great-granddaughters, things just got really, really bad really, really quick. So God's plan, the family, how it would all be shaped, gets really messed up really quick. And what we see is this line of people that continue to come from Adam and Eve and just down the generations, 10, 20, 30 generations down, are just as broken. And you learned a couple weeks ago that it got so broken, all humanity got so broken in the way that families treat each other and how they mistreat each other. And God literally wiped the entire human race off the, off the globe, except for one family. And why I'd like to tell you a lot about why he did that, you can go back and listen to sermons, clcfamily.church, don't have time to do that now. And we saw that God decided to kind of reorchestrate everything through the family again, right? So it's going to be the family that God is going to try to continue to develop, continue to care for. And so God looks throughout the whole globe, finds a family that there's still some hope left for, and that's Noah and his wife. He puts them on a boat, he protects them, and then after, after they get off the boat, they start to be fruitful and multiply again right? Remember the whole idea that God from the very beginning, the mandate in scriptures was, you should be fruitful, multiply, and take it to the whole earth. Spread the human beings throughout the entire earth. In other words, hey, married couples, have sex, travel. That's your job, right? I mean, that was from the very beginning what God intended, and you see it even with Noah. They start to have kiddos who have kiddos who have kiddos, and if you look at Genesis chapter 11, there's a whole, or, yeah, there's a, more of a list. In Genesis chapter 12, another list of families that kind of come through, and at this point, everything's still family, right? 
So God is still working within the confines of family. And as we know, families are really messy and complicated. And we're going to see that God is now going to use a different institution to try to redeem the world. Now, just to kind of let you know, this institution isn't going to work either. And that's why eventually God gives us the institution that he plans to redeem the whole world, redeem human growth and development. And you happen to be sitting in that institution, the church. The church is God's final plan to redeem and restore the world through Jesus. But God's first going to take family. That's not going to work. And then the next thing you see that he's going to kind of build up is a nation. And so when this nation starts, this nation of God, it's going to start with this one guy, and his name's Abraham. Now, Abraham gets his name changed in the middle, and so I might share it as Abram. I might share it as Abraham. I'm sorry about that. But here's let me just define both those words. Abram in the Hebrew just means um, father. Abraham means father of many. So you got daddy, and then you got big daddy, right? I mean, that's just all we're talking about. So, and I, I speak so fast, you probably won't know if I'm saying Abram or Abraham anyway, right? See that? Abram, Abram. Yeah, they're the same. Okay. So we're going to be looking at this guy as kind of the, the father of all fathers. And providentially, and we happen to get to talk about this on Father's Day. So we're going to talk about Father Abraham who had many sons and daughters. And we are some of them. So let's just praise the Lord. <laughs> right on. Anybody, you know the song, Father Abraham? You know what I'm talking about the song? Have you ever thought about what that song means? Like why in the world are you just swinging your right arm in the air? And then your left arm here. You know why? I'll tell you exactly why the song was created. For VBS. Because kids need to expend their energy somehow. So we got to keep them in place. Let's give them a sing. And let's let them sit down. Send, tell them to stand up and shake out all that sugar. Which, by the way, leads me to a very important point. In a couple of weeks, we have VBS again. And if you don't know, this place gets transformed. You'll see it. Uh, the stage we transformed. This big, this big African, you know, safari theme will all be happening throughout the whole place. And um, we've already maxed out. Meaning we've had people already register, lots of them, where our classes have maxed out. And most of our space has. Now, the big hang-up in whether or not we max out has more to do with um, teacher or adult-to-kiddo ratios. So the good news is we could actually more invite more kiddos into it, but we just need your help. So you get to decide whether or not we get the love in our community or we want to tell kids that they don't, they don't matter. <laughs> That's okay. They don't matter. Especially if they don't, they don't go to our church. Those kids out there don't matter. I get it, get it, get it, right? Just joking. Obviously, they matter. And um, one of the things that you really could help with here is um, signing up to be a group leader. Okay? You don't have to teach the Bible if you're nervous about that. You literally have to be able to count to like 9 or 10, maybe 15 at the max, right? And just make sure that all 15 kids are where they're supposed to be. That's it. If you can count, then you can do this job, Okay? Um, but we need you to sign up really quick so that we can do background checks, make sure that we've done our due diligence to make sure you're an appropriate uh, caretaker for kiddos and all those different things. And so if you are interested in that, and you should be, um, would you just mark down the back of your bulletin, Jeanette or Megan uh, from our children's uh, staff. They'll follow up with you ASAP this week. Really, really could use, I don't know, half a dozen more small group leaders at least, or group leaders, if not a dozen more. We've got two different weeks. We've got the preschool week, and then we've got the elementary school week. Elementary school week is really the one that we've maxed out at, so please, please consider that. You've got some extra vacation time. It'd be a perfect time to take it, right? So I'd love for you to do that. But anyway, so we have this whole picture of fathers in there, and we're going to see Abraham kind of walk through. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about this guy, Abraham, um, and actually the next couple of weeks we will. And then for about four more weeks after that, so the next seven weeks, we're going to look at Abraham and then his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons and daughters. And so we'll get to kind of walk through the picture of that. It'll be lots of fun. Definitely going to be worth your time. So just to kind of be clear here, um, everything doesn't get resolved today, so we're going to have to work through it. But I think there uh, will be a, a nice little benefit for you leaning in and listening. And so even if you're not a Christian, what's really interesting about um, this Abraham thing is before Abraham shows up in the in the broken pagan world, um, the idea of a monotheistic God was kind of foreign. I mean, Abraham's descendants were worshiping the moon, which is silly. Like, the moon isn't as special as the sun. If you're going to worship something you're not supposed to worship, you should at least worship the sun, because that's where you get your energy from, not the moon. It just reflects the sun, right? I mean, so um, a lot of people in Abraham's uh, world, they were moon worshipers, but they worshiped all sorts of different things. You know, they had just like, you know, Greek mythology. They had things they worship for fertility, things they worship for, you know, famine, things they worship for, um, you know, love and care and support and, you know, 
prosperity, all these different things that they worshiped. And so what's interesting is God, you know, that was the case of no one. Then all of his descendants, they get really off track. And you just see that even now, the idea of worshiping just a God, like creator God, is just so foreign to us, right? It, in our world now, it's easier to just say that God's in everything, or we're all gods, or whatever it is. All sorts of broken, complicated parts of that. But the idea of a monotheistic, meaning one God, it was um, pretty foreign when Abraham was around. And what you're going to see through Abraham is through his descendants, okay, which is us as well, through his descendants, all of like the big monotheistic, meaning one God worldviews. Here they are, Judaism, Islam, Christianity— that covers over half the globe, more like three-quarters of the globe, maybe even four-fifths of the globe, all three of those worldviews all begin with this guy. They all, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, would point to Father Abraham as kind of the beginning of uh, this understanding that there is a creator God. No, understand me. I'm not saying that the same God we worship is the same God that Muslims worship. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, we worship Jesus as Savior and Lord who does all the work for us, right? The idea of religion is that somehow if we behave well enough, do the right things, pray the right ways, eat the right foods, you know, keep all the rules, then God would be appeased or happy with us. Religion is our attempt to reconcile our life with God. But the reality, you see it throughout the Old, Old Testament, and even now, we are incapable of doing that. You can't even keep the rules you set and your own resolutions you set in January, right? So the idea that we could meet all of God's perfect rules is just obnoxious and arrogant and inappropriate. So this idea that we appease a God by our behavior and our sacrifices is just is nonsense, right? And that's why we worship Jesus, because Jesus is, Christianity is different. It's actually not man's attempt to reconcile or become God. Christianity is God's perfect attempt to reconcile himself to us. Jesus literally steps down this earth, invades our planet, and invites us back into a relationship with God. Really, really neat. He does all the work, all the work whatsoever. But all three religions, Islam, uh, Judaism and Christianity all point to Abraham as their father. And so this is a guy who does really significant things in this world. Really, really great things. I mean, in terms of acquiring wealth, of um, building a legacy, having some pretty amazing grandkids, all those things that we all desire. Abraham is the picture-perfect symbol of that. And yet, he makes a lot of mistakes, which is so relieving. And so, well, that's what... Love for our life's the matter. All of us would love for our um, great-grandkids to experience, you know, good life and experience God. And so Abraham does that, so it makes sense that we would spend some time figuring out what Abraham did and then follow that. So Abraham is kind of a case study on how to figure out God's will. Now, when I was in student ministry, did that for quite some time, um, the two biggest questions that came up, when I was there, and now it's all sorts of other sexuality stuff that's kind of entered into the realm that wasn't so prevalent in the early 2000s. Um, the two big questions, the first one with all students, not all of them, but this was the one that they came to the most, is um, how far is too far, right? And they're talking about in terms of their interactions with their boyfriends and girlfriends. That was a very big question. And then um, the other one was this, how do you know God's will? And even I would say in this room, especially if you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, if there's a God who has a plan and he wants you to follow that plan, if there is a perfect kind of orchestrated thing that God wants you to lean into, if there's, a, if there's like a current he wants you to sit in the, you know, the inner tube in and enjoy, like if there is a way that there's a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, how do you know God's will? Some simple answers are read his Bible and follow it. That'd be really nice. But it's actually a lot more complicated than that. So um, I would say Abraham does a really good job following God's will, which leads to kind of the big idea for today, and here's what it is. Um, it's going to take a while to work through it, just in case you need it up front. Um, God's will starts with God will. Ha <laughs> whoa, mind blown, right? You ready? God's will starts and ends, by the way, with God will. The crazy thing about God's will for your life has nothing to do with how you perform or what you should do next. It has everything to do with what God has promised he will always do. Right? So God's will is all about God, and that's just leaning in and trusting that God will. Now, if we look back at even the story last week of the Tower of Babel, what we saw were a group of people, a big family with their tie-dyed shirts, hanging out at, you know, Waco, Texas, sweating. But they're in this big family, right? And they have this plan, and they're going to build a tower. And they say, we will, we will. This idea that just is contrary to following God, contrary to an abundant life, is, starts with either we or I will, right? 
Everything that goes wrong begins with, I will. I will make it happen. I will do it. I will push through. I will accomplish it. I will succeed. I will get that degree. I will finally feel good. I will. I will. So everything that we see in the scriptures that goes contrary to who God is starts with our, us pushing our own agenda and saying, I will. Now, so what we're going to see here is we're going to see a little bit of this where sometimes Abraham's going to say, I will. It doesn't go well for him. And other times, God's going to say, I will. And when Abraham trusts that, it goes really well. So God's will begins with God actually will do it. Okay? So we're going to look at that. And here's, here's a simpler way if you're a dad, and we're talking about Father's Day uh, today. Here's another way that I would frame that big idea. God's will begins with God will. Here's what I believe. Okay? Your number one priority as a, as a dad completely uncomfortable. You're not going to like it, I don't think. But your number one priority as a dad is not to be the greatest protector. Your number one priority is not to be the greatest provider, right? Those are, that's not your number one job, which I think we all think it is. We've got to protect our family, and we've got to provide for our family, right? Men, they're supposed to be great protectors and great providers. That's not what God wants you to do first, and I feel pretty comfortable speaking on behalf of God here on this, okay? Your number one priority, right? It's to model a life that says that God will. Your number one priority is not to protect your kids and provide for them. Yep, there's some expectations there. Your number one priority is to model a faith that says God will, that God is in charge, that God saves, that God redeems. Our number one priority is to actually help our kiddos get that, right? And so instead of we provide, and the, the reality is God does. You know, when I was— um, so funny. I don't share this story much. It wasn't my notes, but I think it's worth sharing. Um, Julie and I have been married. We'll celebrate uh, 14 years, in the, actually, in the next week, right? And uh, so we got engaged uh, about 16, 18 months uh, before that, which I don't recommend long engagements. They're a little bit stressful. We actually planned two different weddings. One church, big wedding. We thought, oh, that's too much. So then we went to the beach, a little smaller wedding. But um, you know how it works. I think this was the chivalrous thing to do. I bought the ring, right? I had it all ready to go. And then I went and um, invited Julie's parents out, to, or Julie's dad and mom out to, to, to lunch um, to kind of ask if I could take her hand in marriage. I think that's what you say. That makes any sense to me. I didn't want just her hand, just to be honest with you. Um, uh, so remember, <laughs> sorry, Julie. I wasn't talking about this. It was really uncomfortable. Don't look at her. Don't look at her. It's not her fault that I don't think, Okay. So um, when I went and asked, <laughs> I asked um, Phil if, um, if I could marry his daughter. Now, at the time, she was, she was, she was 19. I mean, so, I mean, she, was, uh, she hadn't quite finished up her sophomore year of college. I mean, you can imagine. And so, you know, and I, um, I'm explaining to him, I have, like, all my budgets worked out. I mean, I'm a, I make $20,000 a year as a youth pastor. Her tuition's only, like, twenty five grand a year. We got this covered, right? <laughs> and so I, um, I'm asking him and talking about budget, and he decides to tell me a joke. And the joke that he tells me, he says, you know, there was this young pastor who went and asked a guy for, um, uh, the dad for the hand in marriage. And the dad asks, how are you going to take care of my daughter? And the, da and the boy says, God will provide. Well, how are you going to, you know, make sure she has a house? The young pastor said, God will provide. And then, okay, how are you going to take care of your kids when you have them? The young pastor said, God will provide. And so then the dad goes back to the mom and says, hey, Jethro asked for, you know, Juliet's uh, <laughs> hand in marriage, right? And the wife says to the dad, well, how did it go? And he says, it's actually funny. Um, Jethro thinks I'm God. <laughs> you know, so, so even in our world, we have this weird idea that we can't talk about how God provides because we're as men, we're supposed to provide. You know, Ironically, one of the great things that Julie's dad did do is, I mean, I told him that, okay, I'll pay for her tuition. We'll figure out a way to do it. And he said, okay, great. I mean, it, you take care of it. And so um, the whole next, the, you know, the rest of the year, I save and save and save, put in, you know, not as much money as I possibly can, 15 grand or whatever it is, thinking we have to pay for Julie's tuition next year. And then so we're getting ready to pay it the next year. And he just laughs at me and goes, did you really think I was going to make you pay for my daughter's tuition? So he writes the check, and that's actually how we got our first house. So it was really, really neat. So anyway, all that being said, the big picture of all this is uh, not God's will begins with God will. Our number one objective in life is not to uh, provide for our kiddos, not to 
protect our kiddos. Number one objective, objective is to model a faith that says God will, and we can trust him. He is good in all things, and everything he says he will do, he will do. So long intro, but we have a seven-week series, so it makes sense that we do that. So now here we go. We're going to jump in. In Genesis chapter 11, it's going to be kind of a weird place to jump in. It's actually not a place I usually jump in, but I think it's pretty important that we do jump in here because it's going to talk about the line of Abraham. Now, last thing you got to know about Abraham, even though he experienced greatness, he came from a very pagan worldview. I told you, he worshipped, his family worshipped the moon, which is ironic because the Hebrew word for moon is also the same name as his dad. And so, you know, ha he, uh, he thinks I'm God. In this moment, this, uh, Abram's dad's name is Terah, T-E-R-A-H, which is also moon. Now, there's something else about this word that's really interesting, is the reason they worshipped it was because of the concern that the moon was the end. If they stopped worshiping the moon, everything would end. They would see the moon like we would see um, the fat lady singing at the end of opera. You know what I'm talking about? That's just a statement that we make. Or the caboose is the last thing. And so they saw this moon as the last thing, which is ironic because what we see is this last lineage that comes from Noah, then from Shem, the honorable son of Noah, all the way down where all of it's finally gone bad again. This is the same story with Noah. This is the same story with Cain and Abel. It just all goes bad. And in this moment, what's about to happen, what you see is that there are just pagans worshiping in a pagan world. Now, what the scriptures don't tell us in Genesis chapter 11, they do tell us in Acts chapter 7. So that's New Testament where we get some insight from God through the guy Luke who gives us some understanding of what happened at this time. And what Acts chapter 7 verse 3 tells us is Abraham actually was living in a place called Ur. Okay, that really fancy... Uh, area, metropolis area, lots of nice things. They worship lots of false gods. It was a thriving, booming economy. And while he was there, Acts chapter 7, verse 3, tells us that God tells Abram to leave his country and leave those people and go to this place that he'll show them. So we see that in Acts chapter 7. But in that command, he's actually telling Abram to take his whole family, right? So when you think about this great, beautiful passage that you might know of, go to the land that I'll show you, this is not the first time that God says this to Abram. He's already said it once, and he's told him to take his whole family out of this pagan, idolatrous city. And so we find this lineage of this guy named Terah, who is leading his kids astray. And now they're about to walk through, and so let me just read this to you so you understand where he comes from. Here's what it is. Um, Genesis chapter 11, beginning of verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram. Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. So now we see where Abram comes from, daddy. And this is interesting because he's not going to be able to have kids for a while, and you'll see that. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died, that's his brother, that's Abram's brother, in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So we now know where they're from. Really fancy, booming city, lots of false gods. One of them they worshipped was a moon, which happens to be Abram's dad's name as well. And so we know from the New Testament that God tells Abram sometime in this time that he's supposed to leave, not leave his nation, leave his people, and go to a new place, right? Remember, this has always been the mandate of the Scriptures. In the very beginning, go and multiply. Go to the ends of the earth. You see it throughout the Scriptures, and we see this with Abram. And so then it says this, now verse 29 um, well, I'm sorry, 28. While his father was still alive, Haran died in the of Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Haran happens to be Lot's father. That's why Abraham takes care of his nephew. Um, verse 29, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. You can pay attention to this. This gets confusing, a little bit ancestral. Don't have time to talk about that now. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Really important to notice this. This is horrific to say, but a woman's value in these days had to do with how well they could produce children, right? So Abram was not going to be able to extend the line of this family that starts with Noah, right? This is the end of it. This is the moon. This is the caboose. This is the fat lady singing, right? So we have the Sarai, who is Abraham's wife. They can't have any kiddos. Really important to understand that. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out, for, uh, set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. See this? So they're now going to a place. So they are all moving. They recognize a pagan city. This is the end of the lot. The moon, the caboose, it's done. So they leave. Now watch what happens at the very end of this verse. But when they came to Haran, that's interesting. See, it's the same as the first name, but just an extra R. They actually create a new city and name it after the dead son, right? They, um, when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now scriptures tell us they were heading to Canaan. They had a place to go to. And all of a sudden they decided to settle. We don't know why. 
And yet we do know why. Because settling is really easy. Security is really nice. Could you imagine continuing to travel and continuing to ask God to come through all those days when you could just build your own place, have your own pantry, have your own closet with all the clothes you need? Right? And so it makes sense. It's just part of our nature is not to move forward, not to go, but to stay in a place of comfort, security, and all those things. So we see that here. And so we know, verse 32, Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. He settles. He doesn't continue whatever the call was to be, and there they are settling, and this looks like the end of hopelessness. So you go, the whole family, a barren wife, and they're just going to end here, and this is the end of anything good, any hope that could possibly happen, which then leads us to Genesis chapter 12, which many of you might be familiar with this verse. Let me read it for you, and here's what it says. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, it doesn't really show it there in the go from you. There's actually two yous. Go you by yourself is literally how that would be translated. Go you by yourself. Go you yourself. There's a you and a yourself in this. Go you yourself from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. Now, remember, in Acts chapter 7, we see the first call. It doesn't show up in these scriptures where God just says, hey, leave your country. Country's not going to save you. Leave, um... Leave your people, your racio ethnic status isn't going to take care of you. Leave those things. But now there's a third one in here. And it says, now leave your family as well. So what we see here is God actually tells Abram he's got to leave everything that he's ever known in security. And this happens throughout Scripture. Psalm 45, it says, Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear, for your king is enthralled by your beauty. But she says, it says, Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear, forget your people and your father's house. So there's this conversation throughout Scriptures where people are actually called away from their family. And even Jesus talks about the family, and he didn't come to, you know, heal the family. He came to bring it a sword. And you go, that sounds crazy. But what he's saying is, he came to take away your comfort and your security if it's false comfort and false security. So in this moment, he's actually telling Abram to leave everything. 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 So the first thing you see here, really, really important, you talk about God's will, it's because it all starts with a call. But here's what you got to see. It always is initiated with God. Every single time, it's God first. God does it. You see... What I love about reading about Abram's lineage is he comes from a lot of broken people. His sister-in-law is actually his aunt, or vice versa. And his wife is actually his half-sister. You've got all sorts of complicated things going on in this little broken family tree, right? There's like two branches, and they're all crooked, right? And so you see all this, and so you have a guy whose family worshiped the moon and all sorts of other stuff. They were pagans. And by pagans, I mean they just did not believe in a, the one true God. Like they did not see creator as worth worshiping. Instead, as the Bible says, they saw creation, were, were impressed with it. Instead of worshiping creator, they made their fancy and started worshiping creation instead. So you see this happen throughout scriptures. And so this is not a good family. Abram didn't go to seminary, right? I mean, he, he didn't have a morning Bible study or a quiet time. He didn't journal. Neither did Jesus, by the way, I don't think. But he didn't do those things, right? There's all sorts of stuff going on. Sorry, you can journal. I just grew up in a church that told me I was supposed to journal every day. And I'm like, it seems so weird to write in a diary. Just couldn't do it. You can. I'm glad that you can, right? Sorry, sorry, this is a rub. Should it, I take it back. I take it all back, right? <laughs> anyway, so all this kind of stuff's going on. And Abram, it all begins with a God who calls Abram, right? So this is what you've got to understand, first and foremost, about Christianity. None of it starts with you. It's not about you getting your shirt tucked in. It's not even about you showing up here and thinking that maybe you could do enough to fix yourself so that God could be okay with you. None of that's the case. God sees you in your darkest, deepest despair and calls out. So the whole thing about God's will isn't you being able to figure it out. Never starts with you figuring it out. It always starts with God initiating it and not because you did the right things for him to initiate it. In fact, for the most part, it almost always happens when we're doing the wrong things. That's not because that's how the formula works. It's just we're almost always doing the wrong things, right? And so God actually initiates this. And then you see, okay, what does it mean about God's will? You see a couple things. It says God initiates it, but there's another really important part in terms of following God's will. If you notice it here, here's what it says at the very end of it. It says, um, a household to the land, I will show you. See, this is really interesting because we would probably follow God if he'd explain us, to us exactly what would happen. Right? In fact, a lot of our, when we try to initiate the conversation with God, we go, hey, God, if you would, then I will. 
right? When we initiate it, it almost is always conditional. Hey, God, I'll stop doing that. I'll stop looking at that. I'll start, stop saying that. I'll start giving money. I'll serve. I'll even do VBS, God, in two or three weeks, if you will, whatever it is. Get you out of debt. Heal your marriage. Help you break that addiction, right? All those things must always begin with some kind of disclaimer and some kind of condition where we start it. When we initiate it, it comes with conditions. No judgment. I'm not saying you're bad for it. I'm just saying that's just the reality of how we work. But here, what you see about God's will is it initiates with God, and it's unconditional. Meaning you walk away from all your security, right? It's one of the things I really struggle with trying to figure it out. And I don't have a good answer here, guys, guys because sometimes it, um, I mean, it sounds radical, which is what the scriptures are and what the calling is. But I really struggle both with our church and its reserves, even with our, my own house and our savings is going. Part of the things that we um, say a lot is, well, we need to save for a rainy day, right? I mean, this is kind of that euphemism and really struggle with it to go, I am saving for the potential of a rainy day somewhere in my distant future when right now all around me there are people having rainy days. And I don't know the answers. I'm not trying to teach you anything now. I don't know what's proper stewardship and what's appropriate stewardship of money and also what is me making God and, and all my bank account or my closet or my pantry my own idol, my own God. Right? The reality is, you see, when, when Abraham walks away, if God doesn't come through for him, he has nothing. Let's just be honest. The, do you really need God to come through for you today? Like, will you be homeless? Will you not have clothes? Will you go hungry? Right? Literally, God's calling calls this crazy, radical movement where he says, leave everything. Just go. Just go. Right? And that is really, really hard for us. Really, really hard. And so the first thing is, this is a radical call that God calls, God initiates, and it always happens with us walking away from the things that we think are secure. But here's the reason why. The things you think actually are secure aren't really secure. Control is an illusion. You can get all the stuff hoarded up in your barns and you could die tonight. Right? You could work out every single day I mean, I know two of my closest friends whose dads were um, some of the best athletes I knew. They took care of their body better than anybody I knew. And both of them had massive heart attacks while running. And you know people with the same story. Like, you get all these different things. You can do all the right stuff. You can eat all the right stuff. And you still don't know what's out there. The reality is that control is an illusion. Right? It's just an illusion. It's just an illusion. Right? The, the food in your pantry might sustain you for a week, but it will not sustain you for, sustain you for a year. Or multiple years. And so this idea that we somehow can be our own God and control it all, this is why it has to be initiated with God and it has to be unconditional. So you see those things with Abram. And then watch what happens next. This is really, really neat. So he says, go to the land, I'll show you. And then he says, verse 2, I will. See that? Not you will, not I will, but God is speaking on behalf. And so we see this transition from the way by which we operate in God's will is his will, right? He will. So he says, watch what he says, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So he said, like, let's just talk about it, Abram. Let's talk about what you're looking for. Hey, guys, let's just talk about what you're looking for. You really want the security of a great nation. You want the security of your people. You like knowing who your people are. You point them and go, those are my people, right? You like your people. And so in this, God's saying, I will give you a people. I will give you a nation. I will give you backing. I will give you people who will get in the ditch with you. He says, if you go to the land, I'll show you, unconditional. Here's what I am promising you. Here's what I'm telling you. I will give you your people. You will have security. It'll just come from me instead of the false security you think you're creating in your closet or your pantry or in your bank account. I will give you a nation. I will give you security. Now watch this. And I will bless you. This isn't that it's going to be a horrific life. It isn't, this doesn't mean that I'm going to have you be impoverished and hate your life until you die, right? This isn't, I, he doesn't want you to live a hell on earth. That's not his goal here. He's going, I will give you security and I will bless you. And watch this. So you want, you know, you want security. You want prosperity. That's just truth for all of us. We want a good life. We want to eat good food. We want to experience good things. We want a group of people who love us unconditionally. God's doing, I'll give you those things. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And watch this last one. And I'll make your name great. He's just really crazy, Abraham. The three things you're looking for, security, you know, prosperity, pleasure, and connection to greatness. I'll do all those things. Because you can't do all those things, but I will do those things. And you go, well, why would God do that? Like, what's he up to here? Why is he offering those things? So that's dangerous, because 
To be honest with you, I don't want us to live in the prosperity gospel world. Or if you give, if you sow this seed of money, give us a thousand dollars to pay our life bill. God will give you ten thousand over the next year. Like that's a lie. Even the other thing I struggle with is people in Africa looking over in the Western world and seeing our affluence and going, "Well, if I become a Christian, that means I'll get to drive one of those cars." Right? This this fault. So you go, why in the world would God do those things? We've got to be careful. This isn't about prosperity. You know, on the same side, this is, isn't about poverty either. While some people preach this prosperity gospel that if you give something, you get more as a result. Sow a seed, grow a flower, whatever it is, right? The, the, the flip side that the church goes to is going, well, if people in Africa don't have good things, then you don't deserve them either, right? Why would we feed our kids goldfish in, in kid zone when people in Zimbabwe don't get goldfish in their church, right? This kind of thing. And the reality there is going, if I buy my child a bike, I don't want him to sit there and go, other kids don't have bikes. I guess I just won't have it. I buy my kid a bike because I want him to enjoy it, right? Like I give my kids good gifts because I want them to enjoy them. Now he goes, so why does God do this? One, because he wants us to enjoy it. But you see the last part of this verse, really, really important. And you, will be a blessing. This is it. It's the whole mission. Abram, if you'll go to the land, I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I'll make you, I will bless you, and I'll give you some greatness. But here's the reason. So that you will bless other people. Here's the reality of God's call every time. It always is missional. It's always missional. There's always a mission attached to it. And here's what's crazy about the mission. It's always the same. No matter what it is. If he's calling you to the middle of Wilmington, Delaware, or calling you to the middle of Africa, are calling you right into the middle of your homeowners association, whatever it is. There's always one call for one purpose, and you see it right here, to be a blessing. Every single time, every single time, God's call is always about you blessing other people. You, did y'all hear me last week complain about my pool? My life's so bad, our plaster's bad, and I have to look out every day, and there's my idol out there. Woe is me, I have a pool that's heated. My life is really, really bad. You hear me, like literally. I'm trying to preach at you while I am complaining about God's blessing. You know what remind me how I kind of worked my head through it? Last night, we got to have the folks from Urban Promise over with us. Usually on Father's Day, they're hanging out here with us, the street leaders, the, 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 the barn, the different church today, the, the, the crew of 40 or 50 of them, but they actually went and stayed at different houses last night, ate some food, and had to use their showers because they're coming into a strange place that doesn't have any showers. So strangers are having to use our showers and ask for clothing because they didn't have it. I mean, complicated things. And they got to enjoy the pool, and they were so grateful for it. And I just thought, man, how arrogant am I and selfish am I? Because this is God. This could be the only reason you would give us this pool. Not so my kids can have some comfort in their own backyard, and I don't have to go anywhere, and I just tell them to sit there, and I can watch them and control them, keep everybody else out, right? He gives us blessings for one purpose, to be a blessing. To be a blessing. In fact, you see it in scriptures. He says, he, because he's so generous to us, we should be generous to one another. One goal of the mission, God calls, he initiates, and it's a place outside of our comfort and security, and for one reason and one reason alone is so that we can bless other people. So, got to figure out what to do with that. I will, watch this, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. By the way, just a little piece of trivia, that word blessed that God says here is actually the Hebrew word Barak. Exactly how you understand it. Uh, Barack Obama named of this Hebrew word blessing there. But uh, so he basically says here, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here's what he's saying. Hey, Abram, if you follow me, if you go to the land, I'll show you. I will provide. I will. I will. I will. Say it again. I will. I will bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. I will protect you. And all peoples on earth, remember I told you, all three major worldviews, all come through Abram's descendants. I will, all peoples on earth, they will be blessed through you. Now this is the idea of some common grace. This doesn't mean they all get salvation. It means that today they get to stand up, receive the sunshine, breathe in some oxygen, and breathe out some carbon dioxide, and hopefully take in a piece of fruit or some ice cream or something that they can just enjoy the blessing of the day. That's God's common grace to all people, that we get to live and experience love and connection and community. That's common grace. That's not eternal, but that's common grace. And he's going, I will bless all people, Abraham, through you. Again, not what you'll do, but what I will do. And so here's kind of the big premise. We're not done yet, but. So God's call always starts with him. And he's always calling you to something. And I 
means that you walk away from the conditions of going, I will, if you will, God, it's going. He's already telling you what he'll do. By the way, this is really poor um, uh, negotiation skills. You know, if you think about someone negotiating for money or a salary or something, the one who goes first always loses. You know what I'm talking about? Like, when you lay out the salary, that's why I hate even the things where you, like, have to fill out on the job locations, preferred salary. Come on. You know, like, what do you want? You want that so you can know exactly how much you can cut it to just the right number for it, right? Whoever goes first usually loses. And so in most negotiations in our broken world, we withhold as much information as possible, right? Think about it. You walk in, want to buy a car, and you're like, I'm willing to spend $30,000, but I'm not going to if I don't have to, so I'm going to start at twenty. And they're going, I'm willing to sell it for 25000 at the very latest. That's it. And if we both were just to say, Here, what's your bottom dollar? What's my top dollar? Can we meet somewhere in the middle? High five, the end, right? But in most contract negotiations, you just withhold everything. God is not very good at contract negotiation. He tells you everything you get. By the way, this is actually part of our theology as Presbyterians, this idea of covenant theology. And the word covenant is different than contract. You know what a contract is? It's based on stipulations. Stipulations are if you perform, I perform, which is how a lot of us look at marriage. Why 50% of men divorce? If you perform well, then I'll perform well. But if you don't perform well, then I don't have to perform well. Covenant's different. Covenant means my promise is my promise no matter what. My promise, my commitment to you has nothing to do with your behavior. God, in this moment, tells Abraham what he's going to do. What's he going to do? What he's going to do, no matter what. Here's what it is. Abraham, here's what I'm going to do to you. Here's what I'm going to do. No matter what. This is a covenant. This is God saying he promises that he will work all things together for your good, for those of us who love him. That is not a contract. That's not if you, if you perform well. That's what he will do for you. That is a promise not based on stipulations that he offers you. And so in this moment, it's going, yeah, first and foremost, you hear God's call. And what we know about God's call is it always has to do with being a blessing. So you go, well, how do I know what that is? Really simple, actually. What do you have excess of? What do you have margin in? What do you have more than you need? Is it food? Is it land? Is it time? Is it energy? Is it money? Is it um, shelter? Cars? Like, what has God given you that you have more of than you need? Like, for many of you, you go, well, I can't, I can't give more. But you have time. Maybe it's because you're unemployed right now, and you go, well, I need to make money. Yeah, but God's given you time right now. Why do you think he's given you that time? He has blessed you with time for one reason, for you to be a blessing right? And if God has given you a big bonus, more than you were planning on, not, I'm not telling you to give it to the church. Please, that's not at all what I would like for you to do with it. Why is he doing that for you? One reason. So you can be a blessing to other people, right? If he's given you a lot of energy, what for? So you can do more projects at your house? No, so you can offer that time and energy to kiddos, right? I mean, I one of the messed up things about uh, street leaders being, uh, Urban Promise street leaders coming this weekend to Southern Chester County. It's not on accident. It's so strategic. You know, if my kids were wanting to go for a training for two days on Father's Day weekend, I'd go, there's no way in the world. I want my kiddos. No one's saying there's no way in the world. You following what I'm saying? There's no one there saying, don't do that because I want to be with my child. These kiddos don't have dads. So if you got some extra experience in that and you're an empty nester, but you still got some dad life left in you, Go mentor or foster or adopt. Just going, what do you have extra of? If you got extra of it, there's a reason. If God's blessed you with extra, there's only one reason he's blessed you with it. To be a blessing. Some of you have a lot more education than your work requires. Right? Student loans to go with it. Why did he give you that education? Not so you can have some job security later. So you can tutor or mentor or whatever it is. If God has blessed you, which he has, all of us has excess of something. Why do you have extra clothes that you're not going to wear anymore? Because you're afraid you're going to lose weight or gain weight. What is it, right? Get all these clothes. It's going, if, God, if you have more than you need, what's the purpose of all that? If he has blessed you, there's only one reason he's ever blessed you. So that you will be a blessing, right? He wants you to enjoy it. He wants, to enjoy what, he wants you to enjoy what he gives you. But if you have excess, he wants you to be a blessing. So you go, that's what you should do. And you should give away more than feels comfortable. And your thought and my thought is, well, what if I run out? See it there? See where that eye pops back in, not God? Here's what I'll tell you. If you get to the point that you're about to run out, God will take care of you. Maybe it's through his church. Maybe it's through your community. Maybe it's through a new job. I don't know what it is. But God will, not I will, right? And so that's just what I'd offer you. It'd be a really, really cute sermon. We'd be finished up. But I do want to point out that it's a lot harder than that. So you go, well, how can you help me say 
God will instead of I will. And let me just offer some arguments, okay? I'm going to try to persuade you here. The first one is this. How has I will worked out for you so far? How does your marriage work when you say I will? How does your relationship with your kiddos work out when you say I will? How do your colleagues feel about you when you declare I will or you have to have your way or your radio station or your food? How does that work out for you? Right? I will actually just separates relationships. And don't believe me, let me just show you what happens to Abraham right after this. Let me just read it to you. It's going to take just a second. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. Remember, go to land, I'll show you. He starts walking. And Lot went with him. That's his nephew, because he had, he had some extra time, had some extra people. He's going to kind of foster his uh, nephew for a while. Abram was 75 years old when he set out uh, from Haran to his, that city. He took his wife Sarah, his Lot, nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah and Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, see it? I will. He's literally saying all this is going to come through the offspring. To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, and he appeared to him. So Abram says, yep, God, you will. I'll continue to worship you as the provider. You will. And this is crazy. The disclaimer is all this promise all comes through one offspring. And he has a barren wife. We'll get to work through that next week. Don't get to do it here. Verse 8. From there he went on to the uh, hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. This is really interesting. Bethel means the house of God. Ai means house of ruins. So literally you see him camp out with footings on both sides of the ravine. He's going, God, I want to enjoy your blessings and yet I want to be a blessing. Right? Andy Stanley says if you want to build a bridge, you have to have footings on both sides of the ravine. Why uh, building bridges here is so important. Why we actually have a pastor, our outreach pastor, Ben, whose whole job is to figure out how do we have footings here and get to Link University, get to downtown Oxford or whatever it is, because we have to have footings on both sides of the ravine. So we literally see that and watch what happens here. There he built another altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Remember, God, you're the one who provides all those things. He continues, and Abram sent out and continued toward Negev. Now there were, was a famine in the land. Oh, things are about to get a little bit more complicated. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So things have been going well. Been going well. He's worshiping. Now all of a sudden, things are going bad. This is where it's about to get complicated, which is interesting because that's actually how it works for us. If you have ever seen Psalm 23, you might be familiar with it. It's the Lord is my shepherd. You know what? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He restores my soul, right? Uh, for his namesake, all that. When you see that part, everything's going well. Lord's shepherd, valley's green, ooh, water, all that kind of stuff. I'm, my soul's restored. And you notice in this moment, it says, he restores my soul, right? He's talking about God. David's talking about God. And then it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice that? When things are going good, we talk about God. When things are going bad, guess what we start doing? We start talking to God. Right? And so in this moment, you're going to see Abram get a little concerned. You go, okay, is he going to go back to God? Going to worship God? Is he going to talk to God? And what's he going to do? Now watch this. As he went out about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. I want more than your hand in marriage. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. They will take you from me. Right? This is not a good plan. He's going, okay, I got to control this again. Verse 13, watch what he says. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Bat my eyes, honey, you can save me. All you got to do is go sleep with the king, right? Go live with the king for a while, and I'll be saved. Do you know how broken this is and what this does to a relationship? So watch this. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He said, I will, and he gave up his wife, right? That's not good for your marriage, I don't think. I've never figured out where that would be a good thing to do here, right? He treated Abram well for her sake, because that's his bro her brother, which is half true. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle. He got sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. He gives up his wife, and this is all the stuff he gets, right? Now it says it's better to live on the rooftop of a house than with a quarrelsome wife. I'm guessing this might create a couple of quarrels, some moments. Um, so Pharaoh summoned, uh, and then it says, but the Lord, but the Lord, he will, inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his households because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife, bro? You know? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her back and go. 
Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Okay? This is broken. We don't see the rest of this, but I guarantee you there's some relational fallout in this. There's all sorts of brokenness in this. And so you see Abram say, I will again. And the minute that happens, what you see what happens, it just gets messy again. So Abram's smart this time. Watch what he does. So Abram went up to Egypt, to the Negev, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold, so God is still blessing him. Remember, this is because God promises something, he's going to do it. Not because Abraham behaved correctly. He literally gave his wife to another man, and God's still blessing him. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. He always is going to do what he's going to do. From uh, the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Remember, this is where he was before. Back with footings in both sides of the ravine, going, I'm going to take the blessings, but I'm going to be a blessing, right? And I, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had built his first, uh, built an altar. There Abraham, again, called the name of the Lord. In other words, God, you will, not me. So first thing is, how does I will work out for you? Not very well, usually. Second thing, and this is pretty neat. This isn't the only time that God requires a son to leave his place of security and comfort and all of his things to go to a foreign land for the sake of blessing people. The reason this is so important is this is actually foreshadowing for what God does with Jesus. Jesus is sitting in heaven on his throne, and God looks at him and goes, these people are broken. They are astray. They are destroying their own lives, and they cannot get back to us. They cannot. They cannot find their way. There is no way unless you will make a way. So Jesus literally, he says, go to the land and the people that I'll show you. So the second reason is because that's actually what Jesus does. He models this, so it makes sense that we do it as well. And then the third one, I think this is really beautiful, and the bands will come up here as we sing. Guys, he's not asking you to do it by yourself. Like I told you, the nations get really messed up, and the plan for saving the world doesn't go through nations. That's not why we can't base it on race or nationalism. Those things don't work. There is one plan that God has implemented to say, there is a way to be a blessing. There is a way to bring redemption to this world. There is a way to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, and it's always been the church. So the crazy thing about this is not only are we calling you to do it, God's not calling you to do it alone. He's calling you to do it with hundreds, thousands of other people all across this globe and right here in this building. So it makes sense that this is what we do. Not because we're good, but because God is. Not because we are faithful, but because God is faithful. So God will do the work. We'll get to watch it, and we'll get to do it together. And so that's how we're going to finish up, declaring God's faithfulness. So as a father today, we're not saying we're good fathers. We're saying God is a good father. We're not saying we've always been faithful. We're saying God has always been faithful. And so we get to lean into that together. And so would you stand with me as I pray, and we're going to sing. Oh, Jesus. Man, I really do pray that you would, in this moment and throughout this day, would you just give us a really clear inventory of what you've blessed us with. Whether that's time or energy or money or stuff, home, car, job. God, whatever it is you've blessed us with, God, would you help us take a real good inventory of that to realize that the reason you blessed us is so that we'd be blessings to others. And God, would you raise up a group of people throughout this whole church and then throughout this whole world that would go into the places between Bethel and Ai, have a foot in enjoying your blessings and another foot going and taking them out to a world that's in ruins. And we do it with your faithfulness and with you saying that you will and we can trust that. And so God, would you give us the courage to trust you? Um, and allow our church to do it together. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you lead us?